All right, so today we continue to look at Job's suffering to answer the question of why does God allow evil to exist? Why does God allow suffering to exist? And not only just to exist, but to continue and to thrive. We have looked at how God providentially allows Satan to cause suffering in Job's life. Job already at this point has lost his wealth, and he has lost his family. And we saw one purpose for Job's suffering, and therefore one purpose for our suffering. Suffering is meant to point us to Jesus, the ultimate Job, the ultimate sufferer. In fact, I can go so far to say that all these great what we call patriarchs of the Old Testament, the reason why we still read them today is because they point us to Jesus. And that's why we still read them today. Today we're going to see that Job, because he trusted in God as his future redeemer, he could hold fast to God in any kind of suffering. Losing his children, losing his wealth, a difficult wife, and terrible friends. So we're going to take a look at the challenges that Job experienced while he was suffering. And then we're going to look at how you and I can hold fast in our sufferings because Jesus became our suffering. Because he took on what Satan would want to accomplish through evil in our lives. Let's get to our proposition. And the idea is that you and I can hold fast to God, his presence, and his promises because he is sovereign, not just over your prosperity but also over your adversity. So in this press series, we have already challenged the idea that maybe some of you have, that God's hand is present in your prosperity, but it's Satan's hand that is driving and pushing your adversity. That's dualism. That's Middle Eastern religion coming over to us in America today. We've learned that God is sovereign, and God has his hands in everything. Though God is the ultimate cause of all things, we've also discussed this. Causation of all things does not necessitate origination. you got to get that. Just because God causes all things does not mean that evil and suffering and sin originates in him. God governs all things, even suffering, and even evil, and even Satan towards our greatest good, in and because of his son. I want you to look at how God tells it to the prophet Isaiah in the 45th chapter. Listen to what God says. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Though we have been trying to make ourselves like gods from the beginning. How is God unlike anyone or anything else? Here's how. He is the one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. See, Christians are not dualists. Satan behind all the evil, God behind all the good. God says, no, that's far too simplistic. I am the Lord who does all of these things. God is the ultimate and final explanation behind all that happens. God forms light and creates darkness. God causes well-being and he creates calamity. All things pass through his fatherly, sovereign, and providential hands. Now, a secular person 
an agnostic, or an atheist would say, if there is such thing as a God out there, and he's behind darkness and calamity, like this verse says, I don't believe in him. And in fact, there is no God. As if you have the very power, as if you are God in yourself, to say, I don't want to believe that the sky is blue. I want to believe the sky is purple. And because I want to believe it, so be it. You're putting yourself. And that's what secular, agnostic, and atheists do. They want to put God down from the throne and put themselves on top of it. Remember, evil and suffering is not the greatest threat to Christianity. Evil and suffering are the greatest threats to secularism, agnosticism, and atheism. Because, unfortunately, many, most atheists and agnostics, they will say there is no God, but they still have a standard of justice. They still have a standard of good. And the question has to be, who gets to determine what is good? And their answer would be, I do. But that's relative ethics. That is relative understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Once a person, an agnostic, a secular, or an atheist says, I believe there's real evil out there. Holocaust, evil. 9-11, evil. What's going on between Israel and Hamas, it's evil. It's suffering. Once they say that, that necessitates that there has to be a real standard for what is good and what is evil. What is right, what is wrong. What is good and what is joy in this life. And that necessitates that there has to be a person outside of our story bringing meaning and value to all that's going on in our lives. As Christians, we believe that that person is God, is Jesus. And in Jesus, you and I find real meaning and we find real significance for the evil and the suffering that comes our way. The fact that there is light and darkness, well-being, and calamity from the hands of God, it means two things. It means, well, it means more things, but I'm just share two things with you right now. Life is more complex than what the agnostic, atheist, secular person supposes to you, and what he or she believes, him or herself. Life is far more complex than this. Life, therefore, because of its complexities, it must be governed by someone who is more brilliant, more beautiful, more complex than what this life suggests and what they suggest. But this is another complexity I need you to wrestle with and add to your theology of suffering right now. And it comes to you from Dr. Keller. He says this, he says, while the human race as a whole indeed deserves the broken world that it inhabits, nevertheless, here it is, Evil is not distributed in a proportionate, fair way. We would disagree with the Easterners coming through American culture about this thing called karma. Evil is not distributed in a proportionate, fair way. Bad people do not have worse lives than good people. And of course, the best people often have terrible lives. What Keller is saying here is that evil and suffering that we experience in this broken world is experienced disproportionately. It doesn't match up. Bad, bad people sometimes have better lives than good people. 
what you have to wrestle with theologically and philosophically, as evil as you believe Hitler may be, he was married. He enjoyed filet. He got to enjoy a sunrise. He led a nation, right? Evil is experienced disproportionately. And the best people that we know often experience terrible things. And you know what? Our Job and our Jesus are prime examples of this because they did not experience evil in a proportionate way to how they lived their lives and who they were at their being. You know what this proves? This proves that our world is far more complex and broken than what secular progressivism believes and tries to jam down into your brain, into your heart. This necessitates the existence of someone that we call God, who is outside of our story, who steps into our story, into our brokenness, to take on evil and to take on suffering. And we believe that Christianity alone, above all other world religions and all other philosophies out there, Christianity alone provides humanity with this necessity that Jesus, the God-man, took on flesh to take on evil and to take on suffering. And that's what the cross is all about. There's no other religion and there's no other philosophy that can provide a person with this. And today is going to be about that. Let's jump into our first point. We're going to see in our opening chapters yet again is God's permissive will. God permissively allows Satan to physically ravage Job. Job 2 opens with a similar structure as chapter 1. Did, did you feel like, did we read this before? It's like Job has to go through this again, another cycle of this. But the point is to reinforce that God is sovereign over Satan. There aren't these two powerful beings, two equally powerful beings that are fighting over the world and fighting over you. And we don't know who's going to win. The bad angel on this shoulder, the good angel on this shoulder that you tattoo on yourselves. That's dualism, and it's not Christianity. What we see, yet again, is that Satan must present himself before God. God governs all things, even Satan, even evil, even suffering. And he does it towards his glory and our good. And at this juncture, if you're, this makes you itchy and uncomfortable, you have to remember the life of Joseph from week one of our press series. When Joseph, towards when his dad had just died, and his brothers are freaking out that Joseph's been harboring revenge, now that dad is dead, they're, he's going to exact it, he tells them that though they meant that evil in his life, they intended it, they wanted to do it, they wanted to cause evil in his life, God equally caused that same evil, but he caused it for a different reason, for good, so that he could be a redeemer of people in a very hard time. God and Satan have another conversation about Job. Satan has already taken away Job's wealth and his children, yet Job has remained faithful. Adversity, like Satan was hoping, did not make Job an atheist. And I want to pick up in verse 3. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Like the answer like, yeah, duh, it just happened in the last episode, right? There is no one like him on earth, 
A blame is an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Like, that's just a repeat from last time. But there's more information now. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. In the ultimate sense, who was the one that ruined Job? God. Do you see God taking responsibility for this? You have to see this and wrestle with it. In this verse, we see one of 10,000 reasons why we suffer. Let's review. Job is blameless. He is upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. He holds fast to his integrity when he's suffering. This means that Job did not suffer because he sinned. Do you see that? I want you to look at the phrase. Get your eyeballs on it. You incited me against him to ruin him without cause. It is very human of you and I to want to know why we suffer, right? And you go to atheism and you go to agnosticism, they say it's meaningless. There's no point. We just exist. The true atheist and true agnostic should say it doesn't matter whether somebody slaps you or loves you. That's meaningless. They have no value. These are just terms we use. Things just are. But that doesn't address the complexity of your heart when you suffer, right? When you are hurting, you want to know why. And America gives you this majority answer. You are hurting because you're doing life wrong. You ever heard that one before? You have done something wrong. And they will say, if you're not getting the results that you want, you know, input equals output. One plus one equals two. Maybe in mathematics, but not in life. But that's what we get thrown to us every single day. Now add this idea to this, that deep down, none of us want to suffer, right? We even see this in the suffering of Jesus at Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. It is human nature. None of us want to suffer. We want to avoid suffering. And if your predominant idea in this life is to always seek joy and happiness and never to suffer, you cannot be, be a Christian for long. Here's a dilemma that you must wrestle with today about Job's suffering. Job did nothing wrong, yet he suffered. Satan ruined Job without a direct cause to something that Job has done in his life. Satan wanted to ruin Job because that's Satan's nature. Jesus was very clear with us. His mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's trying to do. And the crazy thing is, God permissively allowed Satan to attempt to accomplish his mission. That is what we said last week is cosmic evil. Remember, there's moral evil and natural evil. Behind it all is cosmic evil. So today, if you are suffering, people are most likely going to tell you, hey, you're doing something wrong. You're doing life wrong. Most likely, if you're religious, we'll see through Job's what you got to give it up. Like, religion's obviously not giving you the results that you want, so replace it with something else. But the life of Job and the life of Jesus reminds us that sometimes suffering is not directly related to our actions. 
but there's something deeper or cosmic that's going on in our suffering. And what this means is that there are deeper reasons for why things happen than merely the Hindu concept of karma about what you did in your last life as to why you are experiencing what you're experiencing today. As Americans, we say karma, karma, karma. But that really, you use it in a way that's not intended and how it was originally designed by the Hindus. What you've done in your past life is having and reaping effects in what you're going on in your current life. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. Let's get to verses 4 and 5. Here is Satan's response to God. He says, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, right? However, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. This is crazy. Who literally, physically inflicts Job? It's Satan. But who does Satan attribute it to? It's God doing it through him. Because God governs all things, all things for his glory and our good. Satan believed that Job only followed God because of the prosperity that God gave to him, right? If God allowed Satan to replace prosperity with adversity, Job would become an atheist. It's a good tactic. It happens to many people. Many people come in and through this church. Adversity comes, and then their lives look like anybody else who doesn't believe in God. But adversity in Job's life only served to confirm the authenticity of Job's faith. And that is another reason why God allows suffering. Adversity shows you where you're at today. I'm tired. I'm hurting this morning. I am. I'll be honest. Adversity proves where you're at right now. Adversity proves the authenticity of faith in a way that prosperity cannot Prosperity incubates you, hedges you, like Satan said last week. I would rather see a man or a woman, not in their prosperity, but in their adversity to see who they really are. I think so does God. You see, it is easy to portray that you love God, you follow God when things are going the way that you want it to go, when things are good. It is impossible to fake devotion. And to fake love for God when you're suffering. Why? Because suffering is a fire. And when suffering comes your way, it burns away everything that you believe is non-essential. And that is why many times when suffering comes our way, people who come through our church, the first thing that goes away is church and community and God and Bible. Because it wasn't essential, most likely, to begin with. So if God would allow Satan to remove good health from Job, if Job experiences physical adversity, surely Job will become an atheist. And look at God's response. He permissively allows Satan to attempt to fulfill his mission again. Verse 6, God says, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. We're going to talk about that word in a moment. I want you to see two things. The first thing you need to see is that God restrains Satan. Do you see that? Satan can touch Job's body, but Satan cannot touch Job's nephesh. 
which is the Hebrew for your spirit, your soul, the true you, who you really are. Satan cannot touch that. Satan can touch Job's body, but Satan cannot touch Job's life. Now, the second thing you need to take a look at is this word spare. It is the same Hebrew word in chapter 1 when Satan says, Job only loves and follows you because you put a hedge around him. And ESB dropped the ball here. They translated hedge in chapter 1, but not hedge in chapter 2. Because the very thing, ironically, and this is the, the awesome thing about God, the very thing that Satan accuses God about, oh, you just hedge him? That's why he loves you? You've taken care of him? Now it's, God tells Satan, you got to hedge him now. His nephesh, you're going to hedge his nephesh. Crazy, isn't it? That's our God. He is sovereign over Satan. He's not less in control during suffering. Satan can take his health, but Satan must hedge and guard and protect Job's life while he's hurting physically. The very thing that Satan accuses God of doing, now Satan must do himself. God restrains Satan because he is, sovereign. he is sovereign over Satan and over suffering. Now we need to take a look at Job's physical suffering so we can apply it to our physical suffering. Let's take a look at it. Verse 7 and 8. Satan goes out of the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Impact on Job. Job takes a posture to scrape himself while he's sitting among the ashes. you got to ask, the ashes of what? Remember all of his farms? Great fire falls on it, burns it up. Wind collapses in the house. Like what ashes, what dust, what rubble? Where his kids just died. So you wanna, if you want to visualize where Job is right now, he's in the catastrophe, the setting of the killing of his children. That's what I believe. So Satan inflicts Job with boils. Boils develop all over Job's body from head to toe. Job is in constant anguish and pain. So much that Job has to take a shard from a broken pot to experience some relief. That the experience of cutting the boils off of his skin is actually less painful than what the boils are doing to him. Or at least a different experience of pain. This would leave Job's body on top of the boils, bloodied, and at risk of infection. No antibiotics back then. Like That's like a 19th, 20th century intervention, right? Job has become destitute. Job has become childless. And now Job has become physically broken. Now let's talk about physical pain. Physical pain is a loud voice that screams above all other pains, right? It's hard for you to listen to the other things going on when I just screamed, right? That's what pain does. Naturally, add on to this that every single person, yourself included and myself, we don't want to feel pain. It constantly is screaming. Then add on to the idea that here in the West, we're so modern, we're so sophisticated, right? We are taught that pain must be avoided at all costs. Remember, there's a reason why 
name brand approximate called Aleve, right? We talked about this Wednesday. I've said it before. Pain jades your ability to see yourself rightly. Pain jades your ability to see people rightly. And pain jades your ability to see this life rightly. And I know that many of you struggle with real, authentic, true, physical pain that's beyond the hangnail and the headache. You have struggled with cancer. You have struggled with the loss of your health. And you ask God, why, God, are you allowing this? And by Job's life, and most importantly, the life that Job points to, by Jesus' life, we have answers. Suffering is not always directly linked to something you have said or done wrong. Let me say that with emphasis one more time for your soul. Suffering is not always directly linked to something you have said or done wrong. And that is seen in Job, but it is best seen in Jesus. Let's keep going to point two now. In point two, we're going to see Job holding fast to God despite the loss of all things and the reactions of others. So we're going two places in this point. We are about to see Job's physical suffering complicated by the people in his life. Remember that Job's suffering, all suffering, points to Jesus. Jesus' suffering was complicated by people as well, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is hours before his betrayal, arrest, trial, beating, crucifixion. All he wants to do is pray to his father. He's scared he's going to die right there in the garden. He just asks his friends, his compatriots, the one he's going to die for, can you stay up with me? No, they can't. Because we are far too self-centered and self-focused. The thief on the cross taunted Jesus, right? The Jews and the Romans at the cross mocked him. If you really are the Son of God, come on down. We'll believe you. The Romans clothed him as a king and whipped him to mock him. Right now, I want you to see how the people in Job's life responded to his suffering. And then I want to discuss with you how sometimes the people in our lives complicate our suffering. Verse 9. Oh, Job's wife. Listen to what she says to him. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. The first thing you need to see is that Job's wife is complicating his suffering. Look at her question. It mirrors what Satan says to God. If you allow me to do my thing, he will surely curse you to your face. Right? And now... For some reason, his wife says the same phrasing. The central question in Job's suffering was whether Job would hold fast to God or whether he would curse 
God. Job has lost his wealth. He has lost his children. He has lost his physical health. But he did not curse God, and he did not sin. I want to paraphrase really quick what Job's wife is really saying. After what God has done to you, you have no reason to follow God. You have no reason to love God. Give it up. He's given up on you. Now, this may be true if you are putting yourself around God for him to do things for you. This can be true. If you put yourself in the presence of God for the prosperity that he provides, I guess so. This is also true if you find your ultimate significance in your health, which Americans do. I mean, self-care day, right? Ironically, I don't come to church because it's self-care day. But coming to church is the most self-caring thing you can ever do for yourself. But if you hold fast and you find ultimate significance in your health and in your wealth and in your relationships, I guess this is true then. I want you to think about this. When you find that evil has wiped away your health, wiped away your wealth, and wiped away your relationships, what's left? What you should really be holding on to. Think of Jesus. Jesus was poor, right? Born in David's town, no room for him. He's the great, 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 great grandson of David. And there's no room for him in Bethlehem. He wasn't born in Rome, in Caesar's palace. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in the country, the son of a carpenter, in the middle of nowhere. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? Jesus has no children. So if our significance is found in wealth, and if our significance is found in family, then the life of our Lord is the most pitiful life on the planet. Do you see that? Do you see that conclusion? No family. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we often say that, Peter's house. He had nowhere to live. Job's suffering shows that Job's wife's significance and meaning was found in the wrong things. And this still happens today. Our closest relationships often value the wrong things. We've got to talk about it. Our family and our spouses can complicate our suffering, especially when what's at the bottom of our convictions and what's at the bottom of their identity and significance are different. And suffering is only going to reveal that. See, our families often have their own ideas of when we should suffer, how we should suffer, when we need to be done with suffering, right? Many of you have lamented to me about how your family feels like you're just not getting over it fast enough. You should hurry up, get back to work, get back to doing life, moving on. So how should we respond? I think first we've got to take a look at how Job responded. 
And that's going to give us some wisdom to formulate our response. Remember, Job is literally sitting in the ashes of all that he has lost. Boils, bloodied, infection. He is physically and emotionally devastated. And I'm not going to diminish that. But it is at this moment that his faith shines brightest. Take a look at it. Here's Job's response. Job's sleeping on the couch tonight, right? He's got no couch. And if he had a couch, he wouldn't be comfortable on it. We need to have the steel and the resolve that Job has right here in the most intimate relationship, physically, humanly. We got to have this same type of courage when intimate people in our lives diverge from where we are. Got to be open and vocal about it. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then the writer says, in all of this, even the confrontation right here, Job didn't sin. That's not sin for Job to say this. Because what he said and how he said it and when he said it came from the right heart. Job calls his wife a fool, right? He's, he's, he's in trouble, right? Suffering often drives a wedge in relationships when the two parties have different values. And not just talking about it isn't going to do anything. Suffering reveals what you really hold fast to. Suffering reveals what you really find significance in, because suffering is a fire. It is folly to put your faith in health, in wealth, in flawed people over God. Your health is going to deteriorate. Whether you know it right now, you are decaying. That's a law of entropy. You know that, right? Skin cells are dying as we speak. Your hair is falling out as we speak. Microscopic things are eating you as we speak. You get that, right? So don't put your trust in health. Don't put your trust in a piece of paper that has to be backed by something that's stronger than that, that does this around the world every single minute of every single day. You put your trust in that. And of course, you cannot put your trust in people who are just as flawed as you are, just as beautiful and just as broken. So Job asks his wife a question now. And like Job's wife, we can turn that question into a statement. We should accept good and adversity from God. That's taking his question and putting it into a statement. But I got to get you to put your eyeballs on this word adversity. You know me. I love the NESB 1996. Not the 2020, the 1996. There may be a day where we do a shift somewhere, I don't know, beyond 10 years to a different translation. But for now, it's still NASB. But the Hebrew word that's used right here for adversity is the same Hebrew word for evil. It's the exact same word. If the NASB translators were not maybe trying to defend the holiness of God here, they should have translated it as, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept evil from God? That's what it should say. 
Job holds fast to God, whether in prosperity or adversity, whether good or evil comes his way from God himself. So after Job's wife tells him, curse God and die, though we stopped after this verse, if you were to keep reading, you would see that Job's got some friends. He's got three friends. And they hear news of Job's suffering. And like a good friend should, they selflessly should leave their homes and go spend time with the person that's suffering. It's a good thing. They start off well for seven straight days. These three friends sit with Job in the ashes of his ruined life, and they say nothing. That's a good model heritage of what to do with people and their suffering. Whatever Job may have said, in one ear and out the other, it doesn't matter. And you don't need to say anything to them. Just sit with them. Oh, but the eighth day, (laughs) the eighth day, they cannot keep their mouths shut anymore. They have a fuse of selflessness. That was only seven days long. Every day, boom, explodes on the eighth day. And then it's just chapter after chapter of attacking Job in his hurt. They complicate his suffering by telling him they know what he's doing wrong. And they're going to spend chapter after chapter telling him about it. Job is suffering because he's a sinner. He has obviously sinned. And what's crazy is that they think they have God's ear and God's voice, or they have the ear of God, but we've read what's going on in the throne room of God. And God says, Job's done nothing wrong. Blameless man, full of integrity, holds fast to me. They believe that God is paying Job back for what he has done. And then even worse, they believe that Job is still suffering because he hasn't repented. If Job would just repent, God would have compassion and heal him. He's still hurting, therefore Job is not repenting. Their encouragement to Job, pun intended, reveals their understanding of a relationship with God. You see, their relationship with God is merely and only transactional. If you do this, God does this. If you don't do this, God will not do this. One plus one equals two. That's their view of God. Life, evil, and suffering are far too complex for this simple equation. So they sit for seven days, but on the eighth day, they expected Job to move. Repent. Build a new life. Do something different. And oftentimes, that is how the people in your life treat you and your pain. Is that right? They expect us to move on their timetable. They expect us to believe why they think we are hurting. When the reasons for why we hurt are all found in here. Not in atheism, not in Gnosticism, not in secular philosophy or the world's religions, but in here. Pain and suffering are far too complex for the simplistic reasons that we give in America for why we hurt. 
True friends wait and sit for as long as is needed. And you got to ask, why are we like this, right? Because it doesn't matter where we are on the planet, time period, culture, we're like this. Martin Luther provides an answer. Martin Luther coined this term in Latin. It's incurvature and sin. We as humans are like this because we are curved in on ourselves. Suffering reveals our curved in nature. Suffering reveals that we are selfish and self-absorbed and self-centered. It reveals we have a natural bent towards ourselves and not towards God or other people. Now, listen to Dr. Keller on this topic. Here's, he says this. He says, we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't believe that we are. Let that sit in the room for a moment. And this curved inness is a source for a vast amount of the suffering and evil that we experience. From the violence and genocides in the headlines down to the reason why your marriage is so painful. And I pray that we are not too self-centered to say, not I, not I. Do you get it? We are so self-centered that we don't believe that we're self-centered. This proves our curved in nature. It proves what the Bible says about us. The reformers call this total depravity. And I've taught on total depravity over the years here at Heritage. Keller is right. Our curved in nature is a source for a lot of suffering and evil, from violence and genocide down to why your marriage is so painful. Because two selfish people coming together and two becoming one is the most selfless thing that you will ever experience in this life. It has to be done God's way. Two selfish people coming together to be one. Not two, but one. So the question we have to ask is, this is true, and we believe it's true. This is what Christianity is. Who can straighten this out? If we have spiritual scoliosis, which I often refer to in teaching this, who can remedy our spiritual spines? The answer is, duh. Only the cross can. Only this cross, no, not this cross, only Jesus' cross is strong enough to make something straight. This is what makes Christianity distinct from secular philosophy and the world's religions. Only Jesus can change our curved in nature. Because as God, Jesus took on our nature and with it, the suffering and the evil that we experience as human beings. Jesus is able to do this because his father did not save him from the fire. And in Jesus' fire, the most precious thing was revealed. Let's get to our application now. The call today, based on this, Job held fast, so we have to as well. Hold fast to Jesus' presence and promise when suffering challenges your faith. I didn't make it conditional if suffering challenges your faith. But when? Jesus is the ultimate Job. All evil and suffering find their end in Jesus. All evil and suffering in the final sense is made impotent 
because Jesus took it on himself. Job suffered not because he sinned, but because he put his faith in a future redeemer who would hold all evil and all suffering accountable. And Job, like you, has an enemy who hates this. Job suffered to point you to his redeemer so you could hold fast to him. Not your health, not your good looks, though you're beautiful. Not your wealth, though you are richer than 90% of the people on this planet. And not your marriage, and not your children. Today, what I want you to see most of all, beyond Job, I want you to see that in Jesus, you have a high priest. Over the years, and we'll see what happens maybe a couple years from now, over the years I've told you, before my time is done here at Heritage, we need to go through the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to throw that in there right now. And then one day down the road, when we go through Hebrews, but like, ah, finally, right? We're going to take a look at dual passages in Hebrews. But I need to make a comment really quick about what priests are. It doesn't matter whether it's pagan religion, Judaism, Catholicism, because all three have priests. A priest is a mediator between the supernatural and the natural. You do not have the ability to fully communicate with the supernatural. And in essence, these religions would have to posit that supernatural doesn't have the ability to fully communicate with you. So you need a mediator. You need a go-between, a middle man. And I'm not here to knock pagan religion or even Catholicism right now. I just want to just talk about Judaism for a moment. In Judaism, they had a concept of a high priest, a priest above priests. And this high priest supervised the most important thing that you would be able to do as a good Jew on the Jewish calendar. He would mediate the most important action between you and God, which is atonement. That's the priest's chief function. A Jew would bring the raw materials to this high priest for this atonement, for this sacrifice. And the high priest performed the sacrifice. First, he had to do it for himself because he's just a dude too. So he had to cleanse himself before he could sacrifice for you and make atonement for you. And he would make atonement with the materials of the sacrifice that you brought to atone and make up for any evil that you've caused in people's lives and any suffering that you've committed in other people's lives. But this is where Judaism falls short of Christianity. Because genuine Christianity teaches that Jesus is the only priest that you need. And Jesus is the only priest you need because unlike any other priest, even Judaism's high priest, which is not in existence anymore, because Rome destroyed that in AD 70, but unlike any other priest, Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. You get that? He can only do it because he's God and man. Jesus is the greater high priest because he became the sacrifice that atones for all the evil that you have done and I have done. All the suffering that you have put upon others and I have put upon others. And all the evil and suffering that we have experienced. Because Jesus is both God and man, his sacrifice permanently atones for the evil and the suffering that we have caused. 
Now, let me put scripture to it. Hebrews 2.18. The writer says, He himself, meaning Jesus, was tempted in that which he suffered. Implication. Conclusion. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and suffer. Jesus' suffering was on full display in Gethsemane and Golgotha. At Gethsemane, Jesus struggled to drink the cup that his father wanted him to drink. Let this cup pass from me. His nature, just like yours, when you're suffering, it screamed for self-preservation. So much that his pores sweat blood. At Golgotha, Jesus took on the collective sin and suffering of his people, the ecclesia, the church, the things that we have caused and the things that were done against us. Jesus was in so much pain, physically, emotionally, and spiritually screamed, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus suffer? Why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? It was so Jesus could atone and satisfy the wrath of God on all evil and all suffering that we have ever committed against people and what people have committed against us. It was so Jesus could take the final sting out of the sins and sufferings that we have done to each other and what others have done to us. Now, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. More high priestiness. The writer says, We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God. Now, here's the phrase. So hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin even greater than Job. Conclusion, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus suffered so that he could be your high priest, the only one, the only one in whom your sin and suffering will find meaning and find resolution. I promise you, Heritage, the final Sunday of Prest, we're getting to the ultimate resolution in Revelation 21. Jesus is your high priest because he took on flesh to take on your sin, to take on suffering, to take on evil. So you don't have to pay people back for whatever concepts, whatever laws you think they're breaking. You don't have to get an outrage. Jesus died for evil. He's going to hold all evil accountable. He will. So what's our takeaway? When you suffer, do you see it? There is mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are found in Jesus, the man of sorrows. God is sovereign over all things, so he can govern all things, even evil, evil even sin, even suffering, towards his glory, for our good, and his son. Remember, suffering doesn't disprove God's existence, it necessitates it. Just because God causes all things, though, doesn't mean 
that he authored evil. He authored sin and suffering. Because causation does not necessitate origination. Suffering reveals what you hold fast to. Job's wife held on to health, wealth, and family. And when that was taken away, she saw no reason for living, no reason for loving and following God. But Job's suffering revealed that he held fast to a redeemer who would one day take his stand on this earth. Suffering will reveal, it will reveal what you hold fast to. But the question is, as we close, what more does God need to say or God need to do to prove that he's overwhelmingly for you? What more does God need to say or do to prove that he is in control of the evil and suffering that you experience? What more does God need to do to prove that you can hold fast onto him? So I want to finish with a quote, and then we'll transition for the Lord's Supper. It comes from a writer named Ann Voskamp in uh, 1,000 Gifts, and she says this. It sounds like Romans 8. That's why I picked it. God gave us Jesus. And if God didn't withhold us, his very own son, will God withhold anything that we need? Need. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, and your name on his cracked lips? I'm thirsty. How will he not also graciously give us all things that he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible.